Now, will you turn to the first chapter of Acts with me? I want to begin a new series of studies with you in the book of Acts. I have both uh, personal and practical reasons for doing so. I realized a few months ago that I had never taught all the way through the book of Acts. Uh, sequentially, I've taught it in bits and pieces, but I've never taught through the entire book. And uh, I've been looking forward uh, to doing this for some time because I want to go back and reconstruct for myself the historical basis of the, of the church and uncover, again, the great principles that make the church what it is. Um, the, the, one of the problems, I think, with those of us who consider ourselves evangelicals is that we tend to think that the church that we're in today is the church. And uh, there isn't really much to know about the church at large, but that's not true. We're part of a historic continuum that goes back 1,900 years, and it's, it's based on hard historical facts and principles that made the church great, and we need to uh, recover them, recapture them. My practical reason for teaching is that I think we're a church that's uh, in a position of, uh, of change, transit, and we need to think through together these principles so we can be what, what God intends us to be as, as his body here in Boise. Judging by what some of my non-Christian friends tell me, the, uh, they, they envision the church as a group of uh, religious creeps. Um, who gather on Sunday morning to stare at someone who is even creepier. Uh, They consider us both odd and bland at the same time without any real relevance. I think probably one of the nicer things that they say about us is that we're irrelevant. But uh, most most people are not that that nice. They, They think of us as meddlesome as self-righteous do-gooders who go about poking our nose in the things that we have no business being involved in. Uh, And I see some of you shaking your heads up and down. Um, Some of you may have seen C.S. Lewis's epitaph that he actually saw on a a tombstone. It reads, um, Erected by her sorrowful brothers in memory of Martha Clay. Here lies one who lives for others. Now she has peace, and so have they. <laughs> and you know, they, someone may have had something there. seems that uh, with the best of intentions, we've come across to the world as meddlesome, troublesome bores. Now, something's wrong. That's not right. That, that's, how, how in the world can something that's so exciting become so dull and irrelevant. We, we need somehow to recapture the dynamic, the distinctive of the early church and recover the principles that, that made her great. And that's why I think we ought to study the book of Acts. Now, just a bit of introduction to the book. The um, author of the book of Acts is Dr. Luke, Paul's good friend and his family physician. Actually, uh, Uh, The book of Acts is volume two of a history of Christian origins that Dr. Luke wrote. Volume one is the gospel according to Luke, which covers uh, a period of about 30 years from the birth of Jesus to his ascension 
and is concerned primarily with what he taught and what he did, the great uh, redemptive background, foundation upon which the church rests. Volume 2 is the book of Acts. It also covers uh, about 30 years, a period of about 30 years, from 32 or 3 A.D. to 62 A.D., and uh, covers the events from the ascension of, of Christ. There's a bit of overlap there from his ascension to Paul's imprisonment in the city of Rome. Now, we don't know a great deal about, about Luke. He was a doctor, we know that much, and he attended Paul at times when he apparently needed help. Uh, there's uh, an indirect reference to Luke in Acts 16, if you'll turn there with me, please. His name doesn't occur, but this is the first of the so-called we sections in the book of Acts so-called, because uh, that pronoun is used and indicates that Paul himself became uh, Paul's, or Luke himself became Paul's companion at this point. In verse 6, uh, Luke says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, probably because Peter uh, either had already gone to that portion of Asia Minor or was going there. That was his territory. And when they came to Mysia, they were trying to get into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus, did not per, uh, of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, ancient Troy, which is the westernmost part of Asia, just across the Hellespont from uh, Europe, from what today is Greece. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we set out to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, if you'll notice, the we section begins in verse 10. Prior to that, the pronoun is they, third person, plural. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. Now, it's we. So apparently, uh, Luke, at this point, uh, became attached to Paul and Silas and Timothy, who were making this journey on into Europe. Now, I think... This mention of Luke is somehow connected with the vision that Paul received. He, he gained a revelation from the Lord. He saw a man from Macedonia calling him to come over and give them help. And immediately thereafter, he met a man who probably was from Macedonia. Luke may have had his practice in Philippi, which was just a few miles over into Europe. And uh, I think Paul must have come in contact with Luke because of the eye problem that he had. He needed a prescription for Phrygian eye salve, and so he looked up Dr. Luke and, and perhaps led Luke to Christ. Uh, it's, it's highly doubtful that Luke was a Christian at this point. The church had not spread much beyond Gentile or Jewish churches, few Gentile believers, but not many, and Luke himself was a Greek from Europe, so it's highly likely that he was a Christian, unlikely that he was a Christian when Paul first met him. He may have led him to Christ at this point, and then... Uh, uh, Luke asked Paul to come over into Macedonia and, and preach the gospel there. And Paul, having already received this vision, was prepared for Luke's appeal. And then he journeyed into Europe to begin the European, uh, European phase of the expansion of the church. Now, uh, the theme of the book of Acts is given to us in verse 8. The Lord is speaking to the apostles. He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's not only the agenda for the early church, that gives us the outline for the book. The first seven chapters cover the expansion of the church throughout Jerusalem and Judea, which is the province around Jerusalem. The second part of the book, from chapter 8 through chapter 12, described the expansion of the church into Samaria, which was the Roman province just to the north. And the final portion of the book, from chapter 13 on to the end, describes the expansion of the church uh, into Europe. Let's begin then with uh, verse 1. The first account I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The uh, book is written to a man by the name of Theophilus, who was also the uh, recipient of, of the gospel according to Luke. Now, we don't have the slightest idea who this man was. Someone has suggested that his father, when he saw him, said, that's Theophilus-looking kid I ever saw in my life. And uh, the name stuck. <clears throat> if that's so, he's worse than a man who named his son Sue. But uh, actually, the, the name simply means dear to God. And uh, we don't know if he was a Christian or not. Those, those God-bearing names, theophoric names, they're called, are found all over the ancient world, even among non-Christians, just as they are uh, today. So we really don't know anything about him. He's simply mentioned here. Uh, in the Gospel according to Luke, Luke refers to him as His Excellency, Theophilus. He uses a term that describes a high official in the Roman Empire. I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think Theophilus was the attorney that represented Paul before Caesar. And that the two volumes which Luke wrote, the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts, were a legal brief which Luke prepared for Paul's defense. I can't be certain, but I get that impression reading through both Luke and Acts. It appears to be a legal defense. It's an apologetic for both the Christian faith and for the church. And I get the feeling that uh, Luke, after he and Paul had gone to Rome and... Uh, uh, they, were, they were waiting their trial, Paul's trial, before Caesar. And Luke sat down and wrote these books in order to inform Theophilus about the historic background of the church. This was in preparation for his defense. Now, there are two things that we're told in these first two verses. The first is that the first account was about the things Jesus began to do and to teach. That's a good summary of the gospel according to Luke. The thing that strikes me is that it's only the beginning. Much more is to follow. The gospel of Luke tells us what the Lord began to do. The Acts of the Apostles tells us what the Lord continued to do through his church. The second thing I note is that there was a transfer of authority or responsibility from the Lord to his apostles, and that takes place in the book of Acts, in the book of Luke, you have the Lord calling, gathering, teaching, and training his apostles. And then he passes on to them the commission. And the work of the church then continues through the apostles from, from that point on to, uh, 
to its uh, conclusion as far as Luke is concerned with Paul preaching in the city of Rome. The substance of that transfer is described for us in verses 3 through 5. To these, that is, to these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together or eating with them, as the margin puts it. That's probably the, the better translation. Eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, there are three things in that paragraph that uh, ought to strike us. Uh, It's a brief description of what we usually refer to as the post-resurrection ministry of Christ, the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, where he gathered the apostles and he taught them. The first thing we're told is that he convinced them that he was alive. There was no question in the minds of the apostles that he was really alive. He was not. Uh, he was not a ghost. This wasn't an apparition. wasn't some form of mass hysteria. He was really alive. You know how he did it. Uh, Luke tells us that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days or more. We talked about these appearances on uh, Easter morning. He first appeared to uh, Martha at the grave, and then to Peter, then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then to the eleven, or the ten, because Judas was gone, and uh, then later to Thomas, then to 500 up in Galilee. So that uh, there was irrefutable evidence that Jesus had really risen from the dead. He let them touch him and examine the wounds in his hands and his side. He talked to them. He ate with them. They saw the food disappear. They realized that he was real, that this wasn't a dream. It had really happened. And that's what puts Christian faith light years ahead of its nearest competitor. There is simply no other religion that affirms that the founder rose from the dead. As I've said over and over again, he beat death, and no one else has done that. And that was the historical basis on which the preaching of the apostles, uh, was. uh, everything was, was built. They went out convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, the second thing he did during this 40-day period is that he instructed them concerning the kingdom of God. And as we know from Luke's prior account, he uh, talked to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and taking the Old Testament scriptures. He taught them all things about himself, beginning with the first book of the Old Testament and all the way through the prophets. So he expounded to them what the Old Testament had to say uh, about his person and uh, his mission. And now he continues that teaching, teaching about the kingdom of God, teaching that God has the right to rule our hearts. That's what Luke means by the kingdom of God. He's not talking about some future kingdom in his book. We're inclined to think almost immediately of the, of the coming again of the Lord and the establishment of the messianic uh, kingdom, his rule over man in the future. But that's not the way Luke uses the term. In the nine occurrences of this expression in the book of Luke, he's t- Luke, he's a book of Acts, he's talking about 
God's rule in our hearts now, which is the essence of the gospel and the essence of life. That's what makes life livable. That's what we were created for. Until we, until we realize that we were made to serve God, life has no meaning, as Augustine put it. Oh God, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. There's no meaning in life apart from God's rule in our heart. That's the essence of the gospel. And that's what, what Jesus taught the disciples. That was the, essentially the message that he sent them out to proclaim. The third thing that we're told is that they were to wait to make this proclamation. Now, that's odd. That's very odd. I would think the thing to do would be to get on with it. After all, salvation had been accomplished. The cross was over and behind them. Jesus was risen from the dead. Now they needed to get on with the task of making proclamation. But Jesus says, wait. Wait. Wait for what? Well, wait for the Holy Spirit. Because the effectiveness of the church was based upon their reliance upon another. The church would not be uh, extended by committees, programs, buildings, organization alone. Those things may be necessary, but that's, there's no power in any of those things. There's not even any power in, in preaching. The, the basis upon which the church would be established was reliance upon the Spirit of God. Now, these, these uh, apostles realized what he was talking about. This wasn't something new. They knew who the Holy Spirit was. They knew from the prophecy made by Joel, the prophet, that the Messianic era would be, be inaugurated by the pouring out of the Spirit. Joel said the time is coming when, when God will pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, upon slave and upon free and men and women, and, and, and everyone will experience this mass baptism by the Spirit or of the Spirit. He would be poured out upon all. So they knew that, that he was coming, and his coming would mark the beginning of, of the Messianic period, this new era, the new world that, that was coming. Secondly, Jesus had taught them a great deal about the Holy Spirit. If you will turn with me, please, back to John 14, in the description of the events there in the upper room, we read something like this in verse 16. Remember, this is the same group of apostles to whom Jesus uh, uh, tells, which Je whom Jesus tells to wait. And he tells them in John fourteen sixteen that uh, he will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will be behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. Now, that sounds like double talk the first time you read it. What, what is this? The, the world won't behold me, but you will behold me. And uh, I do not leave you orphans. I will come to you. 
and the Spirit is with you now, but he will be in you. What, what is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. That's very clear from the passage. When he says the Spirit abides with you now, he's talking about himself in his incarnation. Now, I, I do believe that God uh, is in three persons. It's not that he manifests himself in three persons. That's, that's a heresy called modalism that was condemned long ago by the church. But that he is three persons, that's uh, difficult to understand, even more difficult to explain. It's simply a, a fact that's presented to us in Scripture. But uh, yet Jesus could speak of himself in the sense that he was God, and he could speak of himself as the Holy Spirit, and he could say the Spirit abides with you and refer to himself. He was with them, but something new would happen. I will be in you, he's saying. I do not leave you orphans, I will come again. And he's not here talking about his second coming. He's coming about he's talking about his coming on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to in, to reside in the church and to give it direction. Now what we're saying is that the head of the church today is the invisible Lord. He is not off there somewhere in outer space, light years away. He is right here. In this room, with us, invisible. And he's also gathered with uh, Christians in Cambodia and uh, in Thailand and in Europe and in other parts of Asia. He's there, just as real as he was in the days of his incarnation, but there in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he's the one on whom we rely for direction in the church, you see? Now, turn back to Acts again, and I want to read on in the verses 9 through 11. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, I think most of us, reading that, that account, envision the Lord uh, ascending from the Mount of Olives and, dis, you know, in, and becoming smaller and smaller until he disappears into outer space. Like, and I don't mean this irreverently, but like a, like a rocket going up into, in, off of Cape Canaveral. But that's not the picture that's described for us here at all. He ascended from the Mount of Olives, and a cloud covered him, and he disappeared. He isn't off there on a planet somewhere in outer space. Heaven is not up there. Heaven is another dimension all around us. He's here just as much as he was in the days of his incarnation. He's here just as much as he was in, the, in this 40-day period when he appeared here and there and here and there and he would make himself, he could make himself visible to us right now in this room. If he chose, he's just as real. See, he, he's not off there, he's here. He's still heading up his church. He's still available to us and far more accessible than he would be if he were still in his flesh. Can you imagine what a mess it would be? If Jesus lived in Palestine today, can you imagine the traffic tie-up trying to get to him? You couldn't get a call in for years. There'd be lines block long, blocks long out in front of his house, see? And he's here, just as much as he was 
in the realm of the invisible, in the realm of the spirit, all around us. That's where heaven is. Heaven isn't there. It's here. It's the invisible realm, another dimension. There's an interesting illustration of this in the Old Testament. In, in 2 Kings 6, Elisha and his servant were surrounded in the little city of Dothan. The whole Syrian army surrounded them because uh, Elisha had been able to uh, determine uh, the movements of the Syrian army, and he kept tipping off the king of Israel. And uh, so the, Syrian, the Assyrian king decided that he had to, uh, had to destroy Elisha. So he surrounded Elisha, just two, Elisha and his servant, in the little city of, of Dothan. And here was the entire Syrian army around him. And the servant panicked. He said, what are we going to do? And Elisha said, well, it's all right. There are more of us than there are of them. And the servant says, you've got to be kidding. We're two. There are more of us than there are of them. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And he opened his eyes, and he saw the chariots of God all around the city of Dothan. Myriads of them. Thousands of them. Now, all the Lord did on that occasion is open his eyes to see this other dimension. It's all around us, see? Now, that's where the Lord is. And he's here today. We mustn't rely upon our plans and schemes and our building and our projects and our programs and, and our plans. Not at all. We have to do all those things. But our reliance is upon a Lord who indwells the church, who is invisible, but is real, who is here, who ministers to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, uh, this question of the Holy Spirit raised uh, another issue in the disciples' mind, and that's given to us in verses 3 through 5, or pardon me, 6 through 8. And so, on one occasion, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And they were thinking like good Jews of that time, very nationalistic, very patriotic. And uh, they knew that Joel had predicted that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, that would be the beginning of the new age, that Messiah would come and he would set up his kingdom and he would drive away the enemy and and uh, Israel again would be restored as the center of, of the earth. And these Jews are thinking, well, this, this is it. He's been talking about the Holy Spirit. This is clearly what Joel prophesied. The time has come. This is it. We're going to be a, a great and mighty nation again. Is this the time? Well, uh, the Lord corrects them. He says to them, It is not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my, be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts or part of the earth. And his answer is very instructive to them, and it is to us as well. What he says is, don't get preoccupied with the future. It's so easy for us to get obsessed with prophecy and prediction and the things to come that we miss the main thing, which is to give witness now to the good news about the kingdom of God. God is available once again to man to, to rule in our hearts. That's the main thing. And this idea of witnessing wasn't anything new to the apostles. Isaiah in chapter 43 and 44 said of the nation, you shall be my witnesses. It's just that they hadn't fulfilled that commission. Now it's given again 
to the new Israel, the people of God in this new era in the church. He says, you're to be my witnesses. That's the main thing. That's what you're here for. How many times does he have to say it? It's an idea that's never been rescinded. It, it's there. You're to be my witnesses. And we're not to get preoccupied with the plan. Now, unfortunately, a lot of us are. You know, we all know Christians that are prophecy freaks. That's all they can think about. That's all they can talk about. Some preachers, that's the only thing they can preach on. And uh, we buy the latest books that come off of the uh, presses and go to all of the prophetic conferences and we have all the charts and the schemes and everything laid out. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with studying this, but, but what's wrong is that we tend to get obsessed with it to the point that we miss the duty that God has laid upon us now. Okay? And we forget that Jesus made it very clear. It is not for us to know the times. We believe him when he said, I'm coming back. But do we believe him when he says, you can't know the time? That's a mystery. Time is a mystery. And God has simply drawn a veil over the future, and we just don't know. I've come to the conclusion. I have all sorts of ideas, but, but there are really only two things I'm sure of. Number one, the Lord is coming back. I know that. And number two, he's not through with Israel yet. He has a plan for them. But frankly, beyond that, I can't be sure of anything. And it's not because I have taken leave of my senses and I no longer believe in the authority of Scripture. I still believe in its authority and its infallibility in the original writings, but I, I just can't be sure. And when I look around me in Christendom, I discover that a lot of people must not be sure because we disagree. Godly men who are good Bible students disagree. You know, there are amillennialists and premillennialists and panmillennialists. Those are those that think it's just going to pan out some way. And uh, me, I'm a pro-millennialist. I'm just for the whole thing whenever it comes. And there are some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and some a mid-tribulation rapture and some post-tribulation rapture. And, you know, we ought to make up our minds. I know what I believe, and I think I'm right, but I can't be sure. So let's, let's don't get preoccupied with these things. The main thing is to go out into the world and be God's men and women and to give witness to the truth. Now, that was not easy when Luke wrote these words. You know, it wasn't easy at all. In the first place, in the Roman world, it was um, the, the, the gospel was based on the death of a man who had been who had been put to death for sedition. If you want something comparable today, it would be like uh, uh, giving witness to a religion based upon someone like Sirhan Sirhan or Charles Manson or, or something like that. That's actually the way the Romans felt about, about Christ. He was a traitor. He, he was uh, guilty of sedition, and they put him to death for that reason. And they had to go out and give witness to someone who was not highly regarded at all. In fact, he was despised. And in the Jewish world, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms because Messiah was someone who was, who was blessed of God, but someone who hung on a cross was cursed. So how could you talk about a, a Messiah who was crucified? It was absurd. They came from the 
lower levels of society initially. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, said not many are wise, not many mighty, not many are noble. There were many slaves. That's why you find some of these names in the Bible like Segundus and Tertius. Those are Greek ordinals, second and third. They didn't have names. They just had numbers. And uh, that's that's the, the stratum which much of the church came in those days. Uh, they just weren't highly regarded. They were considered antisocial because they didn't go to the, the imperial games. They were considered unpatriotic because they wouldn't get involved in emperor worship, the worship of, of the state. I mentioned to the men Wednesday morning that they have recently found a, a piece of early graffiti on the walls of the... Uh, uh, of the Palatine Hall in Rome in the quarters of the imperial pages. And there is a picture of a young man on his knees worshiping a figure on the cross, and the figure on the cross has the head of an ass. And underneath is the inscription, Alex Aminus worships his God. Apparently he was some young page in the imperial household who was catching a great deal of flack for his faith. And, and someone else had scribbled underneath, Alexander, in a different hand, Alexander is faithful. It may have been Alexander himself or one of his young friends who, who realized that he was faithful to his, to his charge. It was just tough to be a Christian. If you didn't belong to a trade union, you couldn't hold your job, and yet the trade unions were idolatrous, and, and they... They brought in prostitutes to their dinners, and you just couldn't get involved if you were a Christian. But you couldn't hold a job if you weren't in a trade. So if you weren't poor when you became a Christian, you probably became poor shortly afterward. Because you'd be out of work, or your shop would be boycotted. Life was just tough. They had not yet started to, uh, to they, could, they didn't yet expect persecution from the Roman government. That came later, after the fire in 64. But, but it certainly was not... Uh, you weren't highly regarded as a Christian. Uh, rumors were circulating that Christians were cannibals. You know that? Because they talked about eating and drinking the, the blood and the body of Christ, using that symbolic reference to the Lord's table. And they were, uh, they were accused of incest because they were so demonstrable in their love, and they referred to one another as brother and, and sister. And can you imagine getting up on Sunday morning, getting in your car and going off to work and realizing that everybody on your block thinks you're going off to an orgy? That's, what, that's the environment that, that they lived in. But you know, this little ragtag bunch, starting in Jerusalem, within 10 years, effectively evangelized the center of Judaism, Jerusalem and Judea. In a decade, they did it. And it wasn't the professionals. It was just lay people. Everywhere they went, they talked about the Lord Jesus. Made their way up north, and in A.D. 47, there was not a single Gentile church. There wasn't one to be found anywhere in the Roman world. There were no churches in Asia Minor or in Europe. In A.D. 57, ten years later, Paul had established churches in four of the major Roman provinces, in Galatia, and Asia, and Macedonia, and Achaia, and there were churches planted in all of the major metropolitan areas. And in 57, 
Paul said, I have finished my work here, and he left. Went back to Jerusalem and eventually found his way uh, to Rome. Paid for at Roman expense. And, and when the book of Acts ends, one generation after Jesus ascended, 30 years, the Roman Empire, for all practical purposes, had been evangelized. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone was a Christian. It just means that the gospel was available. There were churches planted, and it was being preached in all of the major uh, centers of that day. Plenty uh, writes a letter in the latter part of the first century, and he says that for all practical purposes, the temples in Bithynia, which is up in uh, what today is Turkey, northern part of Asia Minor then, were deserted. No one was buying the sacrifices because the church had triumphed in that area. There were so many Christians, no one was, was worshiping at the, at the temples. That from a Roman uh, imperial officer who had no personal axe to grind. Simple statement of fact. That's what they did. They just went out in the power of the Holy Spirit and they turned the world upside down. That's what the non-Christians said about them. And it's still going on today. I just finished reading Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts. I recommend it to you highly. You want to read an exciting story of what God is doing around the world. That's That's got to be the the most exciting thing I've read in years. And Richardson tells the story of the Lahu people in Burma. Amazing. The Lahu live, uh, if you can picture in your mind that part of the world, there's a, there's a little extension of Burma to the south that borders on Laos and, and Thailand. The Lahu live in that little peninsula. There are about 250,000 of them living there. They had a, an interesting... Uh, uh, mythology. Uh, they they were monotheists. They worshipped one god, whom they called Guishan, and they believed that Guishan had revealed himself on in a book made out of rice cakes. Uh, everything they wanted to know about God was on those books. But during a time of famine, the Lahu had eaten the rice cakes, and so they had lost the knowledge of God. But they believed someday a man would come with a book about God and he would tell them who God was and how to worship him. They had prophets who functioned primarily to keep that hope alive. They just kept reminding them that one day the man with the book will come. And they built little, uh, little huts, meeting halls in their villages, which they used for no purpose. They were waiting for the man to come with the book. Um, not too long ago, a man by the name of William Marcus Young came to Burma to uh, evangelize among the Shan people who live in that same area. And uh, the first day he, he was trying to get started, he didn't know exactly what to do, so he went to the marketplace in their capital city. It's called Kintung, right close to Mandalay where the flying fishes play. And uh, he walked into the bazaar and he began to preach. He took out his Bible and he started reading from the Ten Commandments. And uh, as he read, he noticed that there were some strangely dressed people that were gathering around him. Most of the people weren't interested. He had made no breakthroughs at all with the Shan. But here was this, these people in strange garb that he hadn't encountered before, gathering around, listening intently, pressing in on him. And they literally kidnapped him <laughs> and took him off to their village. And these were Lahu. 
who on this occasion had come into King Tom to uh, trade. And they took him back to their village and they told him the story. And he went back to the first village and he preached and people immediately responded. They were prepared. Their hearts were prepared. And by tens of thousands, they became Christians. He didn't know what to do. He went back home and he drafted his two teenage uh, sons. And he brought them back and he left them in the first village to teach the people. And he went on to the next village and began to, to preach. Uh, he just recently died. He was there for 30 years. And when he left, there were over 100,000 Lahu who had accepted Christ as their Savior. Almost half of that, of that ethnic group. Can it happen today? It sure can. No reason why it can't. We have everything we need. We have the indwelling presence of the Lord and the person of the Holy Spirit who's available to us. We have the message to proclaim. When I was working with students years ago, I walked into a dorm, gathered the two or three Christians that I knew in that, in that dorm together and, and started talking to them about evangelizing the dorm. And their response was, no, it's not time. What, what we're going to do is write a position paper. And when the position paper is complete, we'll, then we'll start evangelizing. And I said, look, the position paper has already been written. It's the book of Acts. Let's get on with the task. And I say the same to us. We have everything we need. The mandate has never been rescinded. The command is still there to make disciples of all nations. We have all the power that we need. We just need to get on with it. Let's stand and we'll pray together.